source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. The scripture reading this morning is uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. And if you turn to the blue Bible in the pew, it is on page 966, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us your glory. Lord, that we would see the majesty of your reconciling love. That we, like Paul, would be constrained by the love of Christ that we, like Paul, would view Christ in all things, in all people, in a completely different way because of the glory of God. That we, like Paul, could say, the glory of Christ has broken into our hearts in the same way that God said, let there be light in the beginning creation. Lord, therefore, may we be a people who no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised for us, that we ourselves will be jars of clay, giving ourselves up for Christ, dying to ourselves that Christ may be known, known through word and deed in our lives, that we will not proclaim ourselves, but that we will proclaim Christ as his servants. 
O Lord, enable us to walk in the exhilaration, in the joy and the suffering of the Apostle Paul. May we manifest as well the very life of Christ. For we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. This uh, passage, as all passages do, you catch Corinthians almost halfway through here, and it's important to kind of get a feel for where Paul has been. And I'll give you an illustration that may help a bit. Imagine uh, a fellow who, a doctor, who has labored for several months to get to a particular tribe that has a fatal disease that has infected the whole of the tribe. And he arrives and throughout the several days that he's there with, with medicines that would heal this tribe. The uh, resident witch doctor who more or less controls the situation there is now threatening to throw the medicine in the fire and burn it completely waste the whole effort of his getting to that tribe because he is convinced or has convinced himself that, number one, they would be drawn away from allegiance to him, and two, he's trying to plant in their hearts suspicion that this missionary or this doctor, this man, really doesn't have your best interests at heart. That gives you some kind of feel for what Paul's going through with the Corinthians because people have come in behind Paul preaching what he calls a different message. He even says, even Satan clothes himself as an angel of light. And so these who are proclaiming another message, drawing you away from the true gospel, Paul saw that in the same way as these people being drawn away to death and to loss. In fact, it's interesting, This, when he says, we implore you in behalf of God, Christ, be reconciled to God, he's addressing the Corinthians, he's addressing the church, be reconciled to God. We'll have some application of how we always to believe that message as the church, but it shows that Paul is having to convince them in this letter of his sincerity, of the reality of the gospel that he proclaims. Else, like this doctor that may be trying to convince these natives, no, this medicine really will heal you. No, I'm not out to hurt you or to draw you away from anything. I'm here to save you. One example is that Paul was accused of being a weak person physically, of not being impressive physically. And the thought is, well, how could he have such a majestic, glorious message when, I mean, look at this guy. He's not doing so well himself physically. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the favor of God. Well, everywhere he goes, he's being rejected. Everywhere he goes, there are fights and 
and afflictions that accompany him. How can you think that he's bringing the message of God? God sure doesn't seem to be taking care of him. But we preach a different message and we preach health and wealth and good things will happen if you follow up. That's the kind of thing that Paul was up against. So we're going to return to that. But I want you to understand that when Paul here is talking about the message of Christ, talking about God reconciling us to himself and this ministry of reconciliation, it comes after several chapters of just talking about his ministry, what it means, how it operates. Finally, this is the kind of climax of several chapters of Paul trying to lay out what it means that he is a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to go back in a little bit to flesh out some of that. But I want you to begin with that picture of Paul seeking to convince them for their own eternal well-being, calling them to return away from false teaching to trust in the message of Jesus Christ that Paul has proclaimed. So we want to look at this whole idea of reconciliation. This wonderful statement that he says in verse 18, that God was, or verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself. Now, Obviously, to reconcile means there is alienation. There is separation. We human beings do not realize the extent of our own sin against God. We do not realize how we have alienated ourselves against God. The heart of human sin is really pictured in verse 15. He died for all for this reason that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Our fundamental sin, the heart of our sin, is that instead of making God the centerpiece of our lives, the focus of our desire, the goal and purpose of everything we do to please Him, to know Him, to manifest Him, to be like Him, we become the center of our world. It's the heart of every argument we have with another human being. Is self is thrust in the middle. Every disagreement that we have, it's about me. All of our thoughts and our daydreams, so many of them don't have to do with anything of God. They have to do with me, what I want for me. We find it very difficult to be truly as concerned about another person and their welfare as we are about our own welfare. So the whole heart of the gospel, as we're going to see, is that he died. The whole accomplishment is to release us from this self, you might say, implosion that each of us is experiencing. And we all, therefore, are undergoing a mutiny against God a mutiny against his authority, a mutiny of distrust, a mutiny of suspicion of his goodness, a mutiny of raising our fist. John talks about the word, he uses the word lawlessness, 
which fundamentally means a fist raised in the face of God. That's the picture of every human being. Turning our back upon God, abandoning the very one who gives us life. Van Til made the statement that God has to hold us in his arms so that we can even try to hit him in the face. You know, he has to sustain, he sustains our life and we use that life to turn against him, uh, to focus on our own lives. And so there is this alienation. We are regarded as enemies. We have made ourselves to be enemies against God. But this is the amazing, uh, Paul says, this is the amazing thing that was happening. As we're enemies, it's the same thing as Paul says in Romans 8, while we were enemies, he reconciled us. Okay. And here it is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the suffering, the trembling bleeding flesh of Jesus Christ. You think of all of the the very pain and struggle of carrying the cross, of bearing the thorns, of his back being opened up, of the nails piercing him. Paul says, in this, God was working to bring us to himself, to reconcile his enemies. James Denny says this, This is God's earnest dealing with the obstacle on his own side to peace with man. In other words, God, though we had alienated, as we had alienated ourselves against God, God rightly so in justice had committed his wrath against us. In other words, his wrath goes out toward our alienation against him. And so here is God working on his side, working to deal with his just wrath against man. So he says, dealing with this obstacle, which prevails on man to believe in the seriousness of his love and to lay aside distrust. In other words, when we hear this message, look, you're an enemy against God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Seriousness of his love that while you're an enemy, he's working in Christ through the horrible suffering of Christ to bring about reconciliation. And he has that in the same phrase, you see, that he's, he's reconciling the world. How? Not counting their trespasses against him. And then immediately entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And he talks about the passion of God making his appeal through us, that we are ambassadors for Christ. And he says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, which means accept this reconciliation. So you see, the message comes to us, not that God is about to do something. It comes to us saying, the God against whom you have sinned and against whom you've alienated yourself He has already been at work at Christ, committing to reconciliation. It's accomplished. And now he's in us, imploring through us, 
using us as instruments so that he's not speaking directly to you, but he is using us as instruments to say, be reconciled. In other words, accept the reconciliation that I have worked out in Christ Jesus. That's how the gospel comes to us. The gospel comes to us as the God of all creation already in the world reconciling us to himself through Christ, reconciling the world, and now we hear him address us, receive this reconciliation. It's so far from anything like if you do A and B and D and C, then you will yourself get to come to me. No, I have accomplished this reconciliation. I have put away everything on my side that meant estrangement, that would be wrath for you. If you will accept it, then we will be reconciled one with another. And it's that context for the great statement that Philip Hughes says is one of the greatest statements in the Scripture, verse 21. And this really is the explanation of what had to happen in the reconciliation. Notice, first of all, though, verse 19. He was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. You see, that tells you the essence of how what had to happen for this reconciliation. The only way that there was going to be reconciliation is God was going to have to so work that our trespasses wouldn't be counted against us ever again. Whatever they were in word, thought, and deed, however bad they are in our lives, however long they've occurred in our lives, it had to be such that none of our trespasses would be counted against us. Otherwise, we must be alienated from God and receive the judgment from God because of our trespasses. That was the essential thing that God had to accomplish to reconcile us to himself so that our trespasses would not be counted against us. And that's where verse 21 comes. It kind of gives us the, the real guts, or you might say the inner working of not counting trespasses against us. How could that happen? How could he just suddenly forget our trespasses? How could that occur? Well, verse 21, this is how he did it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's such a joining of us with Christ, so that our place of sinfulness and our place that deserve judgment and condemnation, he takes. It's graphic in it that it says, made him to be sin. Of course, it doesn't mean that it made him to be a sinner, a sinful person. But he took the place of sin. He bore the punishment of sin. He stood in the place where we were so that he became, notice, for our sake, he became sin. He himself knew no sin. He himself had never touched or tasted or experienced sin. And so he was a perfect, righteous person standing in our place, becoming sin on our behalf. And then, because we are joined to Him, we can stand in a right relationship to God. We can have only God's favor because we are joined to Christ and His righteousness. 
Net effect is he will not count our trespasses against us and we will be reconciled to him. But how does it happen? He must be, sin must be counted against him in his righteousness. We must be a part of standing with Christ in his righteousness and therefore being acceptable to God. But brothers and sisters, the thing I want to underscore about this whole affair is this, to me, touching statement. When you consider the horrible suffering of Christ, that the creator of the world is here in his son, and all the horror of that suffering, he's there reconciling the world to himself. The sheer passion of the Father to pave the way so that you could have fellowship with Him and so that you would only have His favor every day of your life. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself and then commits to His apostles and then all of those who would proclaim the word thereafter this role of God making His appeal. And the fact that He is addressing the Corinthians teaches us that this is not a message that simply goes out to the world and not to the church. In fact, there was one commentator, I think wrongly, but he says, this message was exclusively to the Corinthians because we don't ever hear Paul say this to non-Christians. Well, I don't think that's right. I think he's giving an example of the whole message that Paul proclaimed, but he is addressing the church at that point to be reconciled to God. And he's addressing the church, therefore, that the church always be resting in this reconciliation, living in the light of this reconciliation, rejoicing in this reconciliation, and living out the benefits of this reconciliation, knowing in their hearts what it means that He has taken my sin away. I stand in the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And I want to flesh that out a bit in our remaining time. And this will get back to what Paul is trying to drive home to these Corinthians of his ministry. These are just the last words of his talking about the ministry that he, he has had and why they must hold to this ministry of Paul. First of all, I want to just lay out what are the implications or, or how does this reconciliation hit us as human beings? We'll just back up a few verses. Verse 14 For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, the phrase I want to just look at a minute is the love of Christ controls us. Most every commentator would say this isn't our love for Christ, but it's the the love Christ has for us, that this governs us. The word is restrain. Uh, and also to control, to impel, to press us. But the idea, of course, for Paul is that this love governs everything that we do. But I want you to tie verse 14, the love of Christ, to verse 19. 
in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. What is that but a revelation of God's love through Jesus Christ to His people? In other words, the final result, and this is what James Denny says here, it prevails on man, this God reconciling Himself, it prevails on man to believe in the seriousness of His love and to lay aside distrust. We see Paul says, we are, verse 13, we're beside ourselves. We're crazy. We give ourselves relentlessly. He's talked about how we are dying slowly because we're spinning ourselves for Jesus Christ. You say, well, what has done that? It's the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ that we've been convinced of because God was in Christ reconciling the world, not counting your trespasses against Him. So you see, this idea of reconciliation, it governed everything that Paul did because through this reconciliation, he was convinced of the love that God has for him. He was convinced of the love of Christ to such a degree that it ran his life. It controlled his thoughts. It created new emotions and desires and purposes for him. And it enabled him, seeing this love, to lay aside his distrust, to say, there is no other safe place to put my life but in the hands of this God who is in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. Imagine this God working to such a degree to reconcile the world to himself, then coming to us and saying, be reconciled. Be reconciled to me. Let us enter into relationship and us turning our back on that, in a sense, infinite effort, infinite passion and sacrifice of God to have us back. And for what? That's the question we have to ask. For what would I give my life? For what idol would I spend myself? For what authority, for what passion in life, aside from this God who... I remember thinking one time I, I was in the ninth, I was in the eighth grade, and this is one of those rare events for you know a basically plain little kid. In fact, I was uh, one of the original geeks. I think I've told you that I was uh, eleven years old. I went through the whole of the encyclopedia, uh, the World Book Encyclopedia, and listed every single animal in there its height, its weight, and its color, and everything else. For fun! <laughs> Couldn't wait to get back to it every day. <laughs> Exciting. Now, I played sports and all that, but I had this geek side. And I, I remember how horrified I was that um, I heard, uh, when, I, when I looked in Boy's Life, and it was the Cub Scout, you know, magazine, I turned to the little cartoon every the monthly cartoon about the cave boys and the boy that was the geek that wore glasses and I started wearing glasses in the fourth grade the only kid that had glasses on guess what his name was Darwin <laughs> I mean it just confirmed you know I'm to be rejected by all humanity <laughs> that's how I viewed it okay <clears throat> so still a very insecure eighth grader in the midst of the wilds of puberty, 
And I hear that this girl that I don't even know in the ninth grade likes me. And when I finally saw her, she was like 10 times too pretty to like me. You know, you just know, no, she doesn't. And, but I found out she did. And of course, that lasted a week and that was it. You know, that's junior high. But just the thought that this pretty girl in a grade ahead of me somehow had begun to like me. How in the world did that happen? And you see, this is, this is what the gospel presents us with. The creator of the world against whom I've alienated myself, and I have to admit, yes, you know, even, even a Christian has to admit, much less a person who's never known Christ, prayer, longing for God, desiring God's glory, giving myself away no matter what for the purposes of God, that's not even on my radar screen. Making Him the absolute center and passion of everything I do, it's not even the thought. That God wants me? That God wanted me so bad that he was in Christ reconciling? And now he comes to me and Paul says, it's as though God were begging, entreating. You know, can you imagine this God? Won't you? Won't you? Won't you? And so he says in verse 14, this love controls us. This love controls us. And it's wonderful in chapter 4. Look how he describes it in verse 6. You've heard me quote this verse many times. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, referring to Genesis, let there be light, day one. That God, that Creator, has done a similar thing in my dark heart, Paul says, He's shown in our hearts, not with the light of creation, but the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, He's shown in my heart through the love, the reconciling love of God in Christ, God's glory has broken into my heart. That's His description. The beauty, the majesty, the amazing God. I see something of Him through understanding that He was in Christ reconciling us to Himself. And what is that glory? The glory is, it's the love of Christ that I've seen. It's the love of God that has burst into my heart. So, to close, how does it affect Paul? What kind of minister does it make him? What kind of man does it make him? How will it affect us? And I don't want you to get hung up so much on, though it's convicting, but just to keep thinking, as I welcome and embrace the rich love of God in Christ, this is what's going to happen to me. He says it in verse 15. Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Here's one of the, this is the heart of what Paul has been saying to these people who are saying, what about this Paul who is so weak? He suffers. He goes through so much affliction. Look at the scars on his body. Why, this man's half dead already. And Paul is making the point here that the reason I live this way 
is because the love of Christ has freed me from all concern about myself. And now I'm spending myself for Jesus Christ. Notice how he puts it in chapter 4, verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So he's not promoting himself. He's now become a servant of mankind. He's become a servant of these people who themselves have alienated themselves from God. But He is now their servant for Jesus' sake. He's no longer proclaiming Himself. And then look how it spins itself out in verse 7. We have this treasure, that is, this treasure of the glory of God, this treasure of the rich love of God. We have it in jars of clay. The Christian group jars of clay get their name from this passage to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may may also be manifested in our bodies. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see the radical nature of Paul saying, he died so that we would no longer live for ourselves." He says, our whole life is one now of the jar of clay slowly crumbling in its effort to spend itself for the sake of other people. So that... Christ would be made known. And you see, it's not only that Paul's word, message of the reconciling God, he now has enfleshed the passion of that reconciling God in laying out his own life for other people. He's a living testimony of someone gripped by this love of God as he slowly gives himself away for the sake of other people. Why? Was it, was it an onerous duty? Was it something that he had to, no doubt, he had to discipline himself. He says he disciplines himself. But you see, it's love of Christ that drives him. He is impassioned by this glorious love that, that God has shown to him in Christ Jesus. And so, Paul seeks to convince them of his sincerity in this passage. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, We're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And later in chapter 4, verse 2, We've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. So you see, because he wouldn't tamper with God's Word, everywhere he went, he suffered rejection and affliction, persecution, and his body slowly died in the process. The jar of clay was just eaten away more and more and more as he spent himself for others. And he's appealing to them. They say, I'm not sincere. Why, look, 
I'm spending my life for you. Spending my life. And even in that process, he talks about, we won't have time for that, but just the glorious hope that he had. That though, as he says in verse Uh, This is chapter 4, verse 16. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And then notice how he describes it. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And he talks about the heavenly dwelling in chapter 5. And that's when he says, whether we're at home in the flesh here, or whether we're with Christ, all we do is to try to make it our aim to please Him. His love controls us and governs us. And I think it's so wonderful here because that glory so changed His life. And He describes it in chapter 3 here, still in this overall passage of 2 through 5. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Notice what he says. As we behold the glory of Christ, as His love has broken into our hearts, as this reconciling God has impressed upon us and shown us the seriousness of His love and the glory of God has broken out, we have given ourselves away to Him, and we slowly are becoming just like Christ. And Paul was. He was dying for the sake of others, just like Jesus died for the sake of others. It's amazing. He said, we're being changed into the same image. And that sounds to us so, oh, how nice, I'm becoming just like Jesus. In what particular way, as Paul describes in this passage, in the particular way of dying for the sake of others. Need we ask the question, what will that look like as a husband to his wife or wife or husband, parents to children, us to our neighbors, one church member for another church member? And then we have to ask the question, and I hope you will ask it, Oh, Lord God, why do I not see more of your love in Christ? Why does it hit me just like a dull thud? Like one guy said, like a pellet breaking off the hide of a rhinoceros. (laughs) What's going on in my heart, Lord? Why am I not responding Why do I not taste and see the love of Christ? And so I guess what I'm laying before you is, here is Paul, absolutely turned against God, the hater of God, so visible, and yet becomes this one so passionate for God. And there's a parable of what every one of us can, and let me say, must become. Not that we're all going to be apostles, But in some way, our lives will take on this character. We will continue to feed and explore and taste the reconciling God's love so that that love controls us, so that we will no longer live for ourselves and we will become servants for all people for the sake of God. And we will slowly be ourselves jars of clay that has a treasure inside.
And dear friend, your only treasure as a jar of clay can be your passionate experience of the love of Christ and your desire to live out that love and exhibit it in everything that you do. May God grant that we will be this kind of people. Let us pray. Lord, we have seen in past weeks that you're the one who declares even the ungodly righteous through Jesus Christ, that we come to you in all of our sin. And as Paul says in Romans 4, you justify the ungodly. We bring nothing to the table. There's nothing that we can earn. It is only your declaration. You don't count our sins against us, Paul says there. And then we see the example last week of the taxpayer simply crying out to you, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, this man went away justified. This man was among the people of God. This man was among the righteous. This man had God's favor because he was broken and crying out for mercy. And here, Lord, you who justify the ungodly, as Paul says in Romans 5, Jesus died for the ungodly. And here we see you reconciling, even while we were enemies, reconciling us, reconciling the world to yourself, and then proclaiming the reconciliation is accomplished. Come and feed, come and feast, come and be reconciled to me. Come and receive what I have accomplished. Lord, forgive us for the hardness of heart. Forgive us for ignoring you. Forgive us for not even realizing how terrible our alienation is against you. How terrible our our idolatry is against you. How deep-seated our refusal of you is. Oh, Lord, thank you that even for your enemies, you would so work. Thank you that you would implore us. Thank you that you do all of this so to shine the glory of God into our hearts to cause us to experience the very love of Christ that finally releases us from self so that now we have the glory and the freedom to live for Christ Jesus and to spend ourselves for other people. Oh, bless us, Lord. May each one of us, each one of us, cry out to you and say, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Lord, enable me to cry out and embrace your reconciliation. Lord, give me eyes to see your love and your glory. Lord, shine in my heart. Don't leave me living for myself in judgment and alienation forever. Oh, Lord, save us. We cry out with that taxpayer, have mercy on me, the sinner. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. 
Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of thy love.